All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 15, looking at verses 15 through 20. So again, that's Mark 15, 15 through 20. Uh, We are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this morning we come to Mark's account of of the beating and mocking of our Lord Jesus by the soldiers. Abuse. That, that word abuse conjures many different thoughts in different minds. And usually what we imagine, or at least what I imagine, and I assume that I'm normal, uh, what, what we imagine is some lesser person on the receiving end of mistreatment and pain by a more powerful person. That's generally how abuse works. There are certainly exceptions to this, but usually it's a more powerful person abusing a less powerful person. Um, A few examples, we think of spiritual abuse, where a church member uh, is hurt by a pastor or some other leader in the church, whether it be a lay leader or or an official officer of the church. Um, They're mentally abused in some regard. They're made to believe falsehoods, made to believe that the abuser has more authority than they actually have under God, and that God demands their submission to the sinful, false, or overreaching commands of men. Uh, Or we think of physical abuse, that's usually what we think of first, I think, Um, where a stronger person physically harms a weaker person, husbands beating wives, parents beating children, bullies beating the weak. Or we think of sexual abuse, where the stronger forces himself or herself on the weaker, whether physically or mentally weaker, or the older harms the younger. There are other examples, but uh, what what I'm wanting to draw out by putting those before you is the powerful one harms the less powerful. That's, that's how abuse works. The, the greater hurts the lesser. That is usually the way of things. But in our text this morning, we are going to see the king of all kings suffering abuse. We are going to see the very son of God receiving abuse from his own creatures. We are going to see the greatest being abused by the least What we're going to witness is we're going to see the king receive a mock coronation. We're going to see the Lord of glory made lower than a peasant, treated as the dregs of society and suffer much abuse. And in seeing the abuse that our king suffered, we will be reminded of some things this morning. We will see what our sin deserves and how awful that it is. And we will see um, that we should hate it, that we should hate sin. We'll see also how much our king loves his subjects. We will also see the beauty and majesty of our king. And we will also be reminded that after his suffering, our king will never suffer again. He will never suffer abuse again, for he is Lord of all. May God bless us this morning as we meet him in his word. So with that said, if you wouldn't are able, please stand with me. For the, inspi- uh, for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to sit under the ministry of your word this morning. It is a privilege to be among your people and to hear you speak to us through the word that you inspired by your spirit. But Lord, we are weak. And just as we needed you to inspire your word so that we could know you intimately, so also we need you to work in us now so that we can understand and receive the word to the benefit of our souls. And so we ask that you would open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to savingly hear and believe what you have spoken. By your word working mightily in us, or rather by your spirit working mightily in us through your word, change us today as we behold Christ with the eye of faith. Grant that we would leave here different than when we arrive because we have come face to face with the living God in his word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get to pointing out some things for our meditation this morning, I just want to walk through the text and, and show you how our Lord suffered. Um, we begin in verse 15, and there we read that Pilate had Jesus scourged. And though the gospel authors don't spend a lot of time describing the physical suffering of our Lord, I think we would be in error to not spend a little time reflecting on it. It's also good to note that by mentioning that Jesus was scourged, in the ancient world, people had a pretty wor good working understanding of what that meant that maybe we don't. Just a quick aside, we are, all of Scripture is holy, but we are on especially holy ground as we enter into this portion of the passion narrative of our Lord. Right, this, is, this, this is our redemption that we're reading about. But the text says Jesus was scourged. Now, scourging is sometimes called flogging, and in the Passion narrative, I believe it refers to the same thing. It was a Roman beating. It was a horrible thing. Uh, some who received Roman scourging actually died from the scourging itself before they could receive uh, their actual execution. And those who lived through the scourging were beaten nearly to death. That was the point of it. It was to weaken the person so that they would die quickly once you crucified them. It was so horrible uh, that according to Roman law, there were actually some classes within Roman society whose members could not be scourged. Upper classes of society, they could not receive this because it was too awful. It was a beating with a whip called a flagellum or flagrum. It's interchangeable. The whip was short, had a wooden handle, and attached to the handle were leather strips with pieces of bone, rocks, and sharpened metal knotted into the strips. The, the victim that was to be scourged would be stripped naked or nearly naked and made to stretch his arms around a pillar or other large object, typically at a forward-leaning angle that would expose his back. And then his hands would be bound tightly on either side of the pillar so that the arms are pulled forward and the back is stretched taut. The skin is stretched as far as it can go. And then the victim was whipped viciously. And I mean viciously. We have never... I, I would argue none of us here have ever witnessed anything so violent, ever. 
The whip with its pieces of bone, rocks, and sharpened metal would tear into the flesh and shred the victim to pieces from the back of the neck to the top of the legs. I mean, to pieces. There are multiple accounts from the ancient world where during scourging, the whip would often expose bone and even the internal organs of the one being whipped. Jewish law demanded that no more than 39 lashes be given, but the Romans had no such law. The soldiers were permitted, this was Roman law, the soldiers performing the scourging were permitted to continue the whipping until they wanted to quit or their commander told them to stop. And usually it would be two soldiers who did the scourging because one would whip the prisoner until they were exhausted and then the other one would take the flagellum and continue the beating. The Romans were experts on cruelty. Experts. And these soldiers were vicious men. They were as men possessed. As you consider a scourging and that it happened to our Lord, you wonder if these men were possessed. They took delight in this. For them, it was a welcome break from the monotony of being a soldier in Judea. This was fun for them. And so they tore our Lord apart with their whips, nearly beating him to death. They beat him beyond recognition. And I'm not exaggerating. Let's, let's read Isaiah 52, 14, speaking of the Messiah. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What does that mean? It means they beat him until he did not look like a human being anymore. They scourged him until he was a mess of flesh, bone, and blood bound to a pillar. And here we see the Lamb of God begin to shed his blood. He begins to shed his blood for sinners. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But this was not enough for the soldiers. It wasn't enough. Verses 16 through 20 tells us of how they mocked him. Verse 16 says that they led Jesus into the governor's headquarters, probably the courtyard of the palace. Mark writes, and they called together the whole battalion. I didn't know this until this past week. A battalion was made up of roughly 600 soldiers. Apparently, every soldier who was not on active duty at, on that day, who was not actively out doing a job, gathered together to, to witness the beating and mocking of our Lord. So here stands Jesus, naked and bloodied, before a crowd of hundreds who have gathered to make sport of him. The soldiers loved to play games with criminals that loved it uh, especially those who were considered enemies of the state and jesus has been condemned as what the king of the jews that's a threat to caesar so these romans are going to play a game with him they're going to give him their own coronation you say you're a king well let's have a coronation then and so they begin they put a purple cloak on him this was probably an old faded soldier's cloak of a red-violet color. And I say that because Matthew says it was scarlet. Um, the ancients weren't as particular with naming collars as we are, so it probably had a scarlet, purplish hue to it. But it looked close enough to the collar of royalty for their purposes this day. You see, ancient royalty would deck themselves in splendid purple robes back then. It was a collar for royalty. It was very expensive. So they're dressing Jesus like a king of sorts a lowly king, and then they twist together a crown of thorns. Now, often people think of a crown of thorns, and, and they get the picture wrong. 
These thorns gathered from a common bush in the region could actually grow up to 12 inches long. Very long thorns. No doubt there were smaller thorns uh, in the bush as well, but the, the long thorns that the soldiers would have chosen were, would, were meant to imitate the long-leaved wreaths that the ancient kings wore that represented the rays of the sun beaming out from the head of the king. And they took this thorny crown and they pushed it down onto the brow of our Lord. This was for pure meanness and pain. No, no doubt blood rushed down the face of Jesus as the thorns tore his flesh and he was crowned. Mark also tells us that they struck him with a reed. This is basically a long stick. The parallel in Matthew 27 tells us that they put the reed in his hand as a scepter. Right? This, this flimsy, weak stick that was bendable. Instead of a golden scepter, they give him a reed. It was meant to signify his power. And then Mark tells us they took it from his hand and began to beat him repeatedly over the head. No doubt driving the thorns deeper into his flesh. And they spat on him. Now, ordinarily, when you greet a king, you would, it was custom to, to kiss his face. He's the king. But here they get near to him only to spit upon him. You, you could see them almost in your mind's eye getting near to his face as if to kiss him and then spitting. This is the, the greatest sign of personal disrespect, even today, if you spit on someone. And Mark tells us they knelt down before him in homage. That's mock homage. Why? Because you would kneel before Caesar. You kneel before kings. And they saluted him as king. This would be the Roman salute. They saluted him as king, just like you would salute Caesar. And they, what do they cry? Hail, king of the Jews. This is what you said to Caesar. Hail, Caesar. You can almost hear the laughter of the soldiers in the background as they bow down before this bloodied mess of a man and say hail king and after they had their fun with him mark says they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him they led him out of the city outside the city gates they actually did this according to old testament law in their in jewish territory here you see maybe you don't know this According to the Old Testament law, when someone was to be cut off, that's executed because of their sin, they were to be taken outside of the camp and killed there. And our Lord Jesus was about to be cut off for sin. And so he's taken outside the gates, but not for his sin. He was to be cut off for us and for our salvation, and so they take him outside of the city. All of this, brothers and sisters, all of this torture, all of this mockery, as I said in the introduction, all of this abuse, he suffered for us. As I'm sure you heard it in my voice, it is hard to read and reflect on these things without shedding a tear and being stunned at the cruelty of sinful men. But at the same time, we cannot read these things without standing amazed at the goodness and loveliness of our Lord Jesus, for he suffered for us. And now, brothers and sisters, I want to point out some things to you from the text that I hope to be of spiritual use to you. First, as we behold the suffering of Christ, we ought to be reminded of what our sin deserves. And I, and I say that because the only reason that he underwent this suffering was for us, for our sins. His blood was shed for us. He was made sin for us. He became our sin bearer 
and was condemned for us. That is in our place. All of this torture and mocking and shame and abuse was in our room and stead. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6, Surely he, that's the Messiah, Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We see here in the suffering of Christ a picture of what our sins deserve. With the eye of faith, we see him beaten and bloodied, mocked and ridiculed. I hope you see this as you read of his scourging, that every lash that he suffered is but an emblem of the stroke of divine justice that was due to us. Every mock leveled at him is the derision and scorn that we deserve from God. Why? You think you're a king, David? You think you're a king, Andy? You deserve to be mocked for your sin and you deserve God to hold you in derision. And yet Christ is mocked in your place. Every hateful thing done to him ought to have been done to us instead, who in our sins claim to be our own kings. He's being mocked for being a king. Oh, is sin not autonomy? Where I say that I'm king over myself and so no thank you God, I won't do as you've said, I will do as I please. I'm the one in charge here. Do we not deserve to be mocked as kings? All of this is for us. As one songwriter wrote, it should have been me. It should have been me facing the wrath of God. It should have been me left to pay for my sin. Every stripe the Lord suffered was due to us. See what you deserve for your sin. See what your sin deserves. For everything that he suffered here, we know should have fallen upon us and more. He's only begun to suffer. Do you see then, this is related, do you see then how awful that sin truly is? Oh, this was a big thing for me to begin to realize as a Christian. Do you see how awful that sin actually is? You see here just part of the cost of the forgiveness of your sins. Why do I say part? Because he hasn't died yet. This is just part of what it cost for us to be forgiven. See here how great the debt for sin truly is. That Jesus must suffer such horrors in order to accomplish our salvation. See how deep the stain of sin must be. How dark it must actually be. How terrible it must actually be. That only the blood of Christ can take it away. You know, you only really find out how awful a stain is once you try to remove it. Spill red wine on a white carpet and then try to clean it out. That's the day you'll find out how deep and awful the stain actually is. In a much, much greater way, as we behold the sufferings of Christ, we see how deep and awful the stain of sin truly is. It is so deep within us. It is so wretched and disgusting. It is so abominable to God. It is so black and corrupting and damning that only the blood of the Lamb of God can cleanse us from it. Oh, Christians, see how awful sin is. See what it took to accomplish your forgiveness. Nothing less than the shed blood of the Son of God. See what you deserve for your sin and see the depth of sin and oh Christians seeing these things hate sin hate it see that it's worthy of hatred 
Why do I say that? Well, God, the perfect judge, hates it. God hates it so much that when Jesus became sin for us, God began to crush him in all of these ways in our place. It's hateful. Truly, sin deserves to be detested. It deserves to have our deepest condemnation. As as Spurgeon said, nothing in the world more richly deserves to be despised, abhorred, and condemned than sin. Let me ask you a question. Seeing it for what it is. Right? Because in seeing the suffering of Christ, we begin to see how bad that it actually is. Seeing it for what it is, how can we love it any longer if we've seen Christ suffer for it? I'm not trying to pour on a guilt trip. I'm trying to arm you for the future. That you might see sin rightly. That you might run from it. That you might repent of it. How could we be at peace with any sin? Even even what we would call the smallest sin when we've seen our Lord receiving the lash for it. How could we willingly dip ourselves back into the black mire of sin when we have seen the cost of our cleansing? Oh, Christian, hate sin. And hate yourself in your sin. I know that goes against a lot of what the world tells you and that everything's about self-confidence. That's nonsense. The Bible teaches that you already love yourself enough. Hate yourself in your sin. And And why do I say that? Why should you hate yourself in your sin? Because Jesus didn't suffer for sin in the abstract. He suffered for your sin. I'm I'm preaching to myself here, by the way. This isn't coming from a place of condescension. He suffered for your sin. It was your sin that brought this upon the Lord. It was for your sin that he bled. It was your sin that made necessary the suffering of the Lord, whom you so dearly love now. Christian, as you consider yourself in sin, you should hate yourself because your sin made necessary the suffering of Christ. May God help us to see it rightly. And seeing these things, brothers and sisters, let us forsake sin. Surely there is no sin that we would harbor in our heart that our Lord suffered so dearly for. Now listen, I'm not saying that we won't sin. I'm not. You're going to sin. Read Romans 7. I'm not making excuses for you. I'm just telling you the reality of it. I'm not, I'm not, we're not preaching Christian perfectionism here. That doctrine is a heresy. But nevertheless, surely the one who has seen Christ suffering in their place will not want to willfully hold on to known sin. That's what I'm saying. Surely we would not want to willfully hold on to known sin sin that doesn't make sense it's against all reason it's against all love for christ christian turn from sin each day take up your cross die to yourself crucify the flesh as you remember how despicable sin is and how christ suffered for it and let's let this be a shield to you in the midst of temptation to sin As you're tempted to sin, remember Christ tied to the pillar and beaten for sin. If Christ's suffering has gripped your heart, you will see it for what you will see sin for what it is, and you will run. Just as the Romans poured contempt upon Christ as he was made sin for us, may we also pour contempt on all our sin and hate it from the depths of our hearts. You know, last thought on this. We often think, this occurred to me as I, was, as I was contemplating this for the sermon. We often think that sin is a light thing. 
And I know we do that because if we always viewed it rightly, if we always viewed it for what it is, we would never find it attractive. But we do. We do find sin attractive sometimes, and that means that we think that sin is a light thing, or at least that some sins are light things, and, we, and, there, and therefore we don't treat it as seriously as we should. But let me ask you this, a great question to take with you to, to, to face each day's temptations to sin. Was the suffering of Christ a light suffering? Was he struck with feathers? Was his suffering a small thing? Perish the thought. He suffered horribly for sin. So when you're tempted to view sin lightly, remember the suffering of Christ and see it for what it is. He did not suffer lightly because sin is not a light thing. May God grant that every time we're tempted, we would see Christ beaten and bloodied for sin. And may God help us to hate it and forsake it. I don't believe that there are, none, none that come to mind, I don't believe that there are any arguments more powerful to keep us on guard against sin than to behold Christ suffering for it. Keep these things before you, Christian. But even as you see what your sin deserves and as you see the blackness of sin, see a second thing. See how he loves you. I love this. If you've noticed, I've been saying this every week for a month. See how he loves you. There's something in this text. It says he bore the crown of thorns. I think there might be something here that we miss often. I know that I have for a while. Thorns are a symbol of the curse for sin. In the book of Genesis, after Adam sinned and brought sin and death into the world, God announced the curses of the broken covenant of works. And in Genesis 3.18, God told Adam concerning the ground, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. What does that mean? It means that thorns are a direct result of the fall. And here Jesus wears a crown of thorns. If you think that this is a coincidence, you do not understand that the whole Bible has one ultimate author. The Spirit of God. This is not a coincidence. That the curse brings about thorns. And here the curse bearer is crowned with a crown of thorns. The Roman soldiers unknowingly provided an emblem of Christ's purpose in his suffering. He was bearing man's curse for sin and he wore it on his brow for everyone to see. Dear sinner, see this. He bore your curse and mine. He bore your curse. That is the curse of the wrath of God for us and he bore it in order to take it away from us. And why? Why would he do this? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Again, you may say, I mean, this sounds kind of Sunday school. No, you need to grow up if you think that this is for children. He loves us. That he would endure such agony and shame and scorn for you in order to take away your curse is proof that he loves you. That he would bear your curse and suffer God's wrath on your behalf shows you that his love for you is genuine. Hear me again. Jesus loves you. Brothers and sisters, I will beat this drum until it breaks because it is all over the passion narrative. He loves his people. Oh, Christian, don't you ever question it. Don't you ever question it. He's proven it to you in his suffering and dying. He loves you. And some of you may think that this doesn't have much continuity with the rest of the sermon, but I don't really care because I think that this actually, this needs said. I know that many of you are going through various difficulties. 
financial difficulties. I know that some of you are still mourning losses. Unsaved spouses, unsaved children. Hated by your coworkers. People who once respected you want nothing to do with you for Christ's sake. You suffer many things. People you thought would be your friends forever want nothing to do with you because you remain faithful to Christ when they have left. You suffer many things and you may be wondering why, Lord, are you permitting these things to come upon me? Why? Why have you brought this suffering upon me? And your pain is great and your stress is great and you're beginning to wonder why won't he give me rest? And maybe, maybe Satan has begun to tempt you to think that Christ does not love you. And that's why he's allowing you to endure these things with no rest. Oh, please hear me. Don't allow, don't allow yourself to question whether or not he loves you. Ever. Ever. Put that thinking off and remember his crown of thorns. Remember that he bore the curse for your sins to make you his own. Oh, hear me. He really loves you. He really loves you. Your suffering is really real, and Jesus still really loves you. Remember that his suffering was for you. I'll quote Spurgeon again. I love this. Remember that when Christ stood by the grave of Lazarus and wept, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now look at him among these Roman soldiers, and then let me say to you, see how he loved us. He loves you. He suffered and died to save you. Don't ever doubt his love for you. But linked to his great love for us, I want to show you now the beauty and majesty of our king. The other things I've said have maybe been aside. This is, this, this is like the meat, I think, of the text. As I said earlier, this whole scene is one of mockery. It's a mock coronation of the true king. The Jews mocked him for being the prophet at the trial, you remember? They struck him and said, prophesy you, Christ, who hit you. They mock him for being the prophet of God. And here the Romans mock him for being God's king. But there is a divine irony at work here. They mocked, but everything they mocked him with is actually true of him. They gave him purple robes, a crown of thorns, a reed for a scepter. They spat on him instead of kissing him. They knelt down before him and they saluted him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. All of this was done in mockery and scorn, but it's all true. It's all true. He is the true king. He is God's chosen king, the servant of Yahweh, the son of man that Daniel spoke of, the Messiah, the Savior, the king of the kingdom of God. More than that, as Revelation continues to unfold, he's not just king of the Jews, though he is king of the Jews. But he's been sent into the world to establish the kingdom of God that is made up of Jew and Gentile, that he might reign over both. He is the king. And he does have royal robes. He has robes of righteousness with which he clothes sinners who trust in him, for he himself is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 he does have a scepter in his hand that is stretched forth from Zion and he will rule in the midst of his enemies as he conquers by grace. That's Psalm 110 verse 2. He is deserving of kisses and all the wise of the world will kiss the son. Psalm 212. He does have a crown of authority and glory over all for he is king of all kings 
and Lord of all lords. Revelation 17, 14. He is deserving of all reverent praise and respect for his throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews 1, 8. And he has merited all men to bow down at his feet, for at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Philippians 2.10. In all of their mockery, unknown to them, they are actually declaring the identity of Jesus. He is the king. And the soldiers were also unknowingly fulfilling prophecy concerning God's king. By the way, whenever you read about the Messiah in the Old Testament... I'm not telling you to like translate that in your head, king, but know that the Messiah is also the king. So whatever you read about the Messiah, you're reading about God's chosen king because the Messiah is the heir of David's throne. And check this out. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. What does the Messiah say? I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Never fulfilling prophecy. The prophet foretold that God's true king would suffer greatly. And this seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? That a king chosen by God would suffer disgrace. Does that make sense in the world? Did Queen Elizabeth ever suffer disgrace? Not directly. No. Kings don't suffer. Royalty doesn't suffer, but this is where we see that the true king is different from other kings. This king came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the king in his majesty here? We're going to sing later the king in all his beauty. I want you to see him here. Some would say, where? Where is his majesty? Here I only read of blood, spit, mockery, and sorrow. Where is the glory? Where is his majesty? Oh yes, there is blood, spit, mockery, and sorrow, but the king's majesty is connected right to it. His majesty is that he endured this for you. This is the glory of the king, that he would endure such shame for shameful sinners. His glory is that the sovereign of all would be abused and die for the unworthy worm. Behold your king. Bloodied and beaten for you. Behold your king. His body broken and his blood shed for you. What majesty. What glory. What love. There's never been a king like this. This king protects and saves his people from certain destruction by bearing the destruction they so richly deserve for their sins against the king. There's no king like this. This is the greatest king. This is the most beautiful one, the most gracious one, the most glorious one. He loves his subjects. See his greatness revealed, that being so great, he would make himself so low for us. This is his majesty. Brothers and sisters, if we consider the suffering of Jesus by itself, like in a vacuum, he is pitiable. And in this whole passage, we're just simply sad. And we weep for his misery. But when we consider the purpose of his suffering, we are compelled to rejoice and behold the king in all of his majesty. Do you know that you glory in a bloody and crucified king? Don't be ashamed of that. We glory 
and a beaten and crucified king. For his death is our life and by his wounds we are healed. By his blood, the king has brought us into his kingdom. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you that this king would not remain low forever. Yeah, this is, you should be very excited. This is, this is good. His mock coronation was but his path to his true coronation. He would, as it is famously said, he would receive no crown without the cross. His purpose for coming into the world was to save sinners by dying for him, for, for them, but his suffering and death would not be the end. Not by a long shot. As you all know, as we've confessed, he would rise, glorified, never to die again. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. His resurrection proved that he is the king that he said that he was and that his death was effective and sufficient to save sinners. And after his resurrection, we kind of skip over this sometimes as evangelicals. After his resurrection, he ascended to heaven to be enthroned. He ascended to heaven to begin his reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and begin his work of taking dominion in the whole earth as the son of man. Brothers and sisters, let's praise the Lord Jesus together now as we read. I'm going to read to you from different portions of scripture about the true coronation of Christ. And I'm just going to read them to you. And just a quick thought, you've not come to the preaching of the word of God just to have your minds filled this morning. That's part of it, but you have come to worship. In receiving and hearing the word of God, you're worshiping. And as I read and declare it, I'm worshiping. So let's exalt the Lord together as we meditate upon his actual coronation. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says of Christ, I saw in the night visions. I love this text. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the king. Speaking of Christ, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 22 that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 records God the Father speaking to God the Son, Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension. And God says this, to the, to the resurrected and ascended Christ, ask of me, just ask, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What is that? I will give you sovereign dominion over this whole earth. Just ask, just ask. This is the king. Finally, Hebrews chapter 10, and there are many other passages, but last one, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says of Christ, this is glorious. But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He sat down enthroned, crowned as king. Brothers and sisters, the king suffered and he suffered greatly, but by his suffering and death, rather, but his suffering and death was a prelude to his glory. He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven where he now reigns over all things as the king. And he is putting all things under his nail-pierced feet. For this world belongs to him. It's his. He suffered, but praise God, he will never suffer again. That should make you happy. I love getting to declare that. Oh, he was ground into the dirt. He was mocked. He was beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, and gave up his spirit and died. Never again. Never again. He will never suffer again. And so instead of the mocking cry of hail king of the Jews, we ought to cry out with reverent tongues, hail king of the world, for he is the true king. This world is his. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you can see that this scene in Mark's gospel is actually a preview of things to come. This will be my last point before application. This, this scene in Mark's gospel is a preview of things to come. The soldiers bowed down in mockery, but one day all will bow before the king. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where we're at in Mark's passion narrative right now. Here's the outcome. Therefore, since he's done that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The king made himself low and he lowered himself that he would mount a cross. And the result of his humiliation is his exaltation. Lowered into a grave as a nobody and raised higher than all. So that every man, woman, and child, every demon and every angel will one day bow the knee before him and say he is Lord. God has declared it and so it shall be. Every tongue shall confess Christ is king. You know, Jesus is daily mocked by the scoffer. The unbeliever rages against him every day, just as the Romans did as he was scourged. But one day, every knee will bow down before him. They bowed in mockery, but it was a preview of what all men will do on the final day. Now, in light of all this, there are three things that I want to put before you. First, connected directly to what I just said, we must bow to this Christ now. We must bow to him now. We can bow now in faith and repentance, clinging to him alone as our salvation, or we will be forced to our knees in the judgment. 
one of my favorite Christian metal songs says, you will bow at my feet or I will rip out your knees. Amen. There is no third option. We either come to him by faith, turning from our sin, trusting that his suffering and death saves us, or we will be condemned by him and confess him anyway on the final day. But remember, oh, hear me, if there's an unconverted person among us, remember his great love for sinners and run to him in faith. He died for sinners, and so he loves to save them. He is willing to receive, forgive, and restore all who come to him, so trust in him. Come to him. Second, Christian, I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. You know how you look around at the world and it's just, everyone hates our Lord and it bothers you? Right, like we can like push it off and be like, well, they're wrong and you know, and, and maybe even callously and I would argue sinfully most of the time say, well, they'll figure it out one day when it's too late. That shouldn't be your heart's disposition. You should weep for them. But we do that sometimes. And we say, man, everyone hates my Lord, and I hate seeing him mocked. I hate watching this all the time. Every time I turn on the television, every time that I open up social media, every time that I read a magazine or a new book comes out, Christ is mocked again and again and again. And it grieves us, and it vexes the soul of every person who has been born again. Why? Because we know of his goodness, and we know his glory, and we hate to see the world raging against him. Be encouraged. The king will not permit the rebellion to go on forever. He won't. As I just read it from Philippians 2, every knee will bow. As Romans 3 says, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Everyone will answer to the king. And on that day, know this, not only will Christ judge the world, but on that great day, he will actually receive the fullness of his vindication. Why? Because everyone will have to acknowledge that he is the king, that he said that he was. He will be vindicated. And we glory in that truth and we await that day. Be encouraged. It's coming. It's coming. And then lastly, I want you to be strengthened to persevere in the faith. As with our Lord, the way to glory is the way of the cross. There is no crown without a cross. This was true for him and it's true for us. We must endure many things for his sake. As I mentioned in that first point about sin and hating it and forsaking it, we must turn from sin, deny ourselves, and pursue the hard road of killing sin. That's that's part of what it means to take up your cross. Who's the cross for? It's for you. It's for you. Literally being willing to die for Christ and then figuratively being willing to lay yourself upon that cross each day and mortify your sin. Denying the self and forsaking sin is part of cross-carrying, and we must carry the cross if we are to reach heaven. Be encouraged to remain faithful in this. We must carry a cross. And we also, as I mentioned in another portion of the sermon, we must suffer many things in service of the king, not just in killing our own sin, but many hardships, many mockings, many rejections, many persecutions for his sake. We will all endure these things to one degree or another in this life. Just give it time. Give it time. But I want to encourage you. Suffering will give way to glory. It will. It will. It happened for our Lord, and he promises the same to us. As Paul talks about 
This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Remember that. Remember that. And take up your cross. And know this. Just as there is no crown without a cross, I want you to remember this. For the Christian, there is no cross that does not lead to a crown. Our Lord has sanctified to us every cross that we might bear. And he has sanctified our sufferings by suffering first. There is no crown without a cross. And there is no cross without a crown for those who are in Christ. May God grant us eyes to see the king in all of his majesty. And seeing, may God grant us to trust, love, and be faithful to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our king who suffered for us. And was not just a king who suffered, but a king who's been raised in glory. A king that's, that we can be confident in will conquer this world. A king that we can be confident who will reward us for his suffering, for he has everything in himself. We ask God that you would help us to be faithful to him. Help us to trust in him. Help us to see him rightly and grant that we would glory in him all the more. Our crucified and risen king, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.